Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Securities and Exchange Commission needs people with the expertise to oversee so-called crypto assets like Bitcoin. The Government Accountability Office finds the agency needs to update its workforce planning strategy to ensure it has the crypto experts it'll need. More now from the GAO's Director of Financial Markets and Community Investment, Michael Clements. Mr. Clements, good to have you with us. Pleased to be here, Tom. And let's begin with what is the SEC's role with respect to these cryptocurrencies, which actually are any of them not a scam, I guess is the question. To the extent that cryptocurrencies are securities, they would fall under U.S. securities law, for which SEC is responsible for enforcing. SEC has noted that many of these crypto assets are likely securities and therefore would fall under its remit. And have they been doing that to date? I guess they have. They have some crypto expertise on board, did you find? That is correct. We found that there's approximately 120 staff out of the 4,900 staffs at SEC who are crypto experts or who spend a predominant amount of their time working on those issues. And in general, does the SEC have a workforce planning strategy? In 2016, we had made a recommendation to SEC to develop a workforce plan, particularly looking at skills gap analysis. In 2019, SEC had taken steps to address that. In particular, they developed a competency survey to understand what the skills their staff had, and also the conducted what are known as human capital reviews, where they look at okay, what skills do we need updating. What we did find is that the SEC had not updated its workforce plan. Its last workforce plan ran 2019 through 2022. So, in fact, we recommended in this most recent report that they update that workforce plan. Is there any indication that the staff that they have now on the crypto beat, let's say, made any mistakes or have they missed anything? I mean, SEC famously missed the Madoff affair many years ago. That was not a crypto situation, but it was brought to the agency's attention and nothing happened and so on and so forth. The rest is history. And then we had this FTX failure last year, a spectacular thing. Was the SEC on top of that with the people it had? The commission has been engaged in a fair amount of outreach with the industry to let them understand what their obligations are. The commission has issued a number of guidance documents to the industry to let them know, okay, who needs to register and uh, under what conditions. And we can follow on that the commission has taken enforcement actions. The commission has brought over 130 enforcement actions against entities that have not registered in compliance with the securities laws. Because these companies are selling basically investment instruments in something that actually doesn't exist. It's a hash somewhere on a piece of software hidden you know, somewhere on the internet, basically, is what you're investing in. But nevertheless, they have the mechanisms of investment as if it was a stock. Fair way to put it? Correct. If the crypto asset meets the definition of a security, it is required to be registered. And any exchange that is trading those crypto assets need to be registered. In many instances, these crypto assets fall under what would be considered an investment contract, which is a type of security. And again, SEC in 2019 provided a framework for industry participants to be able to look at their crypto asset and decide, is this a security or not? And just briefly, do you have any sense of the industry itself? I mean, is it like electric cars where there's a bunch of people jumping in? 
in a year, most of them will be bankrupt and disappear, and there'll be a couple left standing, maybe Tesla, maybe one or two others. Is that how it is in crypto, where you know Bitcoin will still be there and the rest of them will fall away? I don't know if I want to predict who might be here <laughs> in, in five years or so. At this point, Bitcoin does have the most staying power. And in recent days, in fact, the commission improved several spot Bitcoin exchange traded funds for folks who perhaps want exposure to Bitcoin, but don't want to actually hold the Bitcoin themselves. Sure. We're speaking with Michael Clements, Director of Financial Markets and Community Investment at the Government Accountability Office. And so what have you recommended for SEC? So in the December report, we had three recommendations. First, as I'd mentioned, to update its workforce plan, align that plan with its uh, strategic plan, which runs from fiscal year 22 through 26. Second, uh, SEC has set up an office which is dedicated to crypto and really technology policy at large, which is called a spin hub. We had two recommendations there. First is to formalize its policies and procedures around its controls just to make sure that it's, in fact, achieving its objectives. And then secondly, to develop performance goals and measures it had not done so at this point. Again, just to help make sure that it's achieving what it's intended to achieve. Yeah, these are the basics that you would have with any program that an agency initiates. That is correct. FinHub is a relatively new entity. It started out in 2018 within the Division of Corporation Finance. It became a, a separate standalone office in 2020. Some of these foundational elements are still needed in terms of policies and procedures and performance goals. And by the way, which areas of Congress tend to be interested in the SEC and what it's doing and with Bitcoin? Is there correspondence between the agencies that oversee SEC and also have to do with the uh, cryptocurrencies themselves? That's correct. So in Congress, the two main committees would be in the House, Committee on Financial Services. In fact, we did this uh, work for the chairman, McHenry, of that committee, and also in the Senate, the Banking Committee. That said, in some cases, these cryptocurrencies and crypto assets could be considered commodities. In fact, Bitcoin is generally considered to be a commodity, in which case also the agriculture committees in both the House and Senate are involved. Interesting. So it's both a financial investment instrument, a security, and it's also a commodity. Uh, in the case of Bitcoin, the general thought is that is a commodity. There are other coins in crypto assets in general that are considered to be securities. And I guess we assume this, but I should ask it directly. There are special technological information you need to know to be able to oversee what's going on in Bitcoin because there is no physical commodity. I suppose in theory you could get a truck full of pork bellies. Not that anyone ever does, but someone maybe, – maybe a processing plant does. But no one ever takes physical possession of anything. It doesn't exist in time and space. That's our, our sense that – Given the complexity of the technology, that it's important for, again, staff to have these expertise. In, in fact, that was one of the driving forces for SEC setting up the FinHub office in the first place. And did the SEC generally agree with the recommendations you made, the three recommendations? Yes, SEC agreed and has committed to take an action to address all three. Well, let's hope they help us avoid the next few FTXs, potentially, that could happen. <laughs> Michael Clements is Director of Financial Markets and Community Investment at the GAO. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. 
So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.